There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree and planted, planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. And when it should bear fruit next, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that the, the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I think that right now in our present world, uh, death can be largely hidden. We don't see death as much as people did in, in past generations where, uh, I mean, we, we don't raise generally our own animals. Uh, we generally don't care directly for our dying, that there's hospice care and, and nursing homes. Um, and so I think the fact that we don't rub up against death as much as past generations can give us this sort of sense of immortality, that, that we're just going to be here forever, that, that life is somehow really secure and stable. But then, as, as I'm, I'm sure all of you following the, the news over the past couple weeks with COVID-19 and coronavirus um, and, and the fact that there, there's a lot of fear that um, there's this global outbreak, it's popping up in different countries, cities are shutting down, being quarantined, they're thinking of even canceling the, the Summer Olympics. And so there's a sense of fear. And I think that as we reflect on it as, as believers, uh, that no matter what happens with this virus, that it, it teaches something really important about human society in general. Because we, we can put so much trust in our economy, we put so much trust in modern science and um, just, just the modern ability to be able to control the world. But then it only takes one microscopic virus from a market in China to tank the world economy, to cause so much unrest, so much fear. And it shows how, how fragile human society actually is, but, then, but also just how fragile our lives are individually. Um, because we, when we see death on the news for whatever reason, we're, we're kind of reminded, oh yeah, we're, we're, 
we don't live forever. Death is there. And, and there's a sense of well, we don't want to die. We don't want friends to die. We don't want family members to die. And, and I think that that is completely understandable. That's a, a right reaction. And that's why we're praying as believers for, for those dealing with, with the outbreak, that it would be stopped in its tracks. But I do think it's interesting that our, as humans, we default in thinking that, that life is the norm and death is kind of the exception. And, and it's as if we would go on just living forever, but then we're, we're so surprised when certain things kind of come to our life that show, no, we're, that we're not actually immortal. But, I mean, if you look at human history, I mean, thus far in every generation, you say, what is the, what is the death rate of humanity? That there's been a 100% death rate in every generation ultimately for death, right? That, that there's, there's a pretty good chance that in... 120 years, no one in this room right now is going to be alive unless Jesus comes back first. But yet, again, we're, we're surprised, we're afraid. And so I think then, then it makes us confront when we think about death in the world, when we see it on the news or see it in our own lives, how do we actually respond to death? What is the, the Christian response? Is the Christian response different in some way than the world's response? And that's what this passage is about from the book of Luke. Uh, if, you, if you look back at, at verse 1, Luke 13, um, Jesus is with his disciples, and they hear a report of something on the news, as it were, at their time. And it says that there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood had been mingled with their sacrifices. So again, if you were following the events, the news in first century Palestine, you wouldn't be talking about coronavirus, you wouldn't be talking about North Korea, you'd be talking about Roman occupation, about the atrocities being committed by Rome. And so here are just a few examples of what you would see on the, on the news. So this, these are all reported by Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian. The butchering of 6,000 Pharisees in Jerusalem by Alexander Janus when they objected to his offering sacrifice. The slaughter of 3,000 protesters in Jerusalem by Herod Archelaus during Passover. The massacre ordered by Pilate of armed Samaritans, and, and the list would go on and on. And that's just what we know about from even extra-biblical sources. And so when, when Jesus, with his disciples, hears this report of an, another atrocity from the Roman Empire, they wouldn't have been surprised, they wouldn't be surprised, but still, you think about the hearing of people going to Jerusalem from Galilee for worship, and they're essentially murdered by the Roman authorities, by, under the authority of Pontius Pilate, the, the governor, and it says that their blood was mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. And so as people heard this, we can even speculate a little bit about different responses, um, that there could be the response of fear. And, and maybe that was part of the reason that they were reporting this to Jesus, saying, look, we are essentially pilgrims going to Jerusalem for worship from Galilee. And look at what happened to these other pilgrims coming from Galilee, that um, they were murdered, their blood was mixed with the sacrifices. So maybe we should stay home. We'll, we'll put a travel ban on going to Jerusalem because it's just too dangerous. Or some may have been more angry at the, what was happening, and they, 
They see the atrocities. They see what Rome is doing. And so they're thinking, all right, Jesus, let's get to Jerusalem as quickly as possible because you're the Messiah after all. And the Messiah's job, according to our current theology, our current eschatology, is to kick out the Romans to establish peace and justice. So let's go right now and make a difference. But I think that probably the, the most common response, most likely response, based on how Jesus responds, uh, was that the, the disciples responded to this by blaming the victims in Jerusalem. It's because we know that they did this other times in Scripture. In John chapter 9, the disciples are going along with Jesus, and they see a man who was born blind. And so they say, hey, Jesus, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And so they just assume somebody's at fault here. Who is it? Because there's this, this sense of a, a one-to-one correlation between human sin and human suffering. And that idea is extremely attractive to the human mind, that it, it seems extremely logical, that we, we think it kind of makes sense of human suffering in the world, because you say, all right, I'm alive, I'm doing well, I'm not suffering, that must mean that I'm doing the right thing. But, but look, you're suffering in some way, or, or you're, you're dying, that's a sign that you're doing the wrong thing and so there's this sense of just retribution and this is what exactly what we saw after 9-11 here's an excerpt from an article in in 2001 it says the Reverend Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson set off a minor explosion of their own when they asserted on television on Thursday that an angry God had allowed the terrorists to succeed in their deadly mission because the United States had become a nation of abortion homosexuality secular schools and courts, and the American Civil Liberties Union. And, and so you see the logic. It's, it's not just saying there's human suffering and death in the world as a result of the sin of Adam. It's not just saying that, yeah, there can be a pattern in Scripture where God will bring consequences for sin on a society or on an individual. That's true as well. But r- rather, there's, there's a one-to-one correlation of saying, New York is a wicked city. We're a wicked nation. Therefore, this happened. And if we had been doing something different, this wouldn't have happened because there's this one-to-one correlation between human sin and human suffering. And again, that idea is really attractive to us. It's, it's attractive to humans, but it's not how Jesus wants us to respond. Because look at, at verse 2, what Jesus says after he hears this news. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And so Jesus is anticipating the response of blaming the victim. And he's saying, Are are you thinking that these Galileans are worse? That, That somehow this was just a just retribution? Otherwise this terrible thing wouldn't have happened to them? Are you saying that there's a a one-to-one correlation between human sin and human suffering. And in verse 3, he says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And I think that that is an interesting response. It's, It's a pretty direct, almost harsh response from Jesus. Because what we said is true, that when we see atrocities, 
when we see human suffering, when we see death, we're afraid, we're angry. Sometimes we try to blame the victim. But other times we even try to blame God. And, and we ask questions like, how could God let all of these innocent people suffer? Or the, the question of, why do bad things happen to good people? But Jesus flips the whole paradigm upside down because he assumes the, the universal sinfulness of all humanity. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And, and sin is our failure to, to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength in our neighbor as ourselves. And so instead of seeing suffering or death as this kind of lightning bolt from heaven that just kind of strikes down the especially bad, sinful people, what Jesus is saying is that, that death, the, the, the wages of, of sin, is more like a, a flood and that it's being held back by the, the mercy and the good pleasure of God at any given moment. And then occasionally the, the fingers are, are taken out of that dike and we, we see what humanity actually, if, I mean, apart from the grace of God, what we deserve, death, separation um, from, from God, that, that is, that's actually the, the reality. And, and so our question then isn't just why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to, to bad people? Because that's the boat where, where all of us all, that, that we're all in the place of being the bad people deserving the, the judgment of God. And that's the point that Jesus is making in the parable down in verse 6 to 9, if you look there in your, in your Bible, Jesus talks about this fig tree, that it's planted in, in the ground, it's, it's growing, and at the point when it should start to bear fruit, the, the owner of the vineyard comes three years in a row, still no fruit. And so he says, okay, this tree is just taking up perfectly good ground, let's just cut it down plant something else so that it will actually bear fruit. But then the, the vine dresser, uh, the uh, person tending the vineyards, intercedes for the tree and says, let's wait one more year, and I'm going to fertilize the ground, I'm going to dig around it, and come back in a year, and if it still isn't bearing fruit, then we'll cut it down and throw it into the fire. Now, the point of this parable is, is really that, that we're a lot like the tree, that, that we're the, the unfruitful trees that aren't bearing fruit for God, aren't repenting, aren't loving God, aren't loving our, our neighbors. But then what we do is, is we, we, we maybe even see another tree that is cut down near us, and we think, well, yeah, well, my, my leaves were a little bit greener than that tree's leaves, or or, you know, I was, I'm slightly taller than that, that other tree. And so I was spared because of how good I am. And, and you know, I'm, I'm this wonderful decorative tree for this beautiful plot of land. And, and I've received this reward of, of life. But in reality, it's the opposite. That the way that we should respond to this is to say, say wow, actually, I'm, I'm no better than anyone else. Uh, that I've sinned, that I've fallen short of the glory of God, and yet somehow I'm alive right now, that God has, has spared my life for another minute, another hour, 
another day, that there is an opportunity to repent, to turn to the Lord, because he's so good and so gracious and so long-suffering to his people. And just to drive this home then, Jesus um, goes back to another incident on the news. Look back at at verse 4. And so he's reinforcing the same point. Verse 4, he says, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So again, Jesus is bringing up something else on the, the news in first century Palestine, this tragic disaster where a tower fell on 18 people and killed them. And it's a little different. It's not necessarily a Roman atrocity. It's more of a, seems like a freak accident in some way. But it's, it's this, the same question of, when you look at the people who died, those 18 people, if they were innocent, then God seems unjust. Um, and so they would say, well, maybe they were worse than everyone else. That's why this happened to them, that there's a, a one-to-one correlation between human sin and human suffering. But look at what Jesus says in verse 5, the exact same answer he gave to the other event on the news. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so when we turn on the news, whatever it is, whether it's coronavirus or a a shooting or some sort of violent catastrophe around the world, how do we respond? Do we respond by, by fear? Do we respond by anger? Do we respond by blaming the victim or patting ourselves on the back? And Jesus is saying, no, that, that what we should do essentially is, is turn the spotlight on ourselves and repent. And so you say, well, well what is repentance? Well, let's kind of take just a brief little step back and think about this. What is repentance? Because Jesus says, repent. And so if you turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, um, you don't have to turn. You can also um, just listen as I read these passages. But Acts chapter 2, this is the, the section where uh, the, the, essentially the church is being launched. Uh, the apostle Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And as people are hearing him preach, they're coming under the conviction of sin. And so they ask the most important question that anyone could ever ask what must we do to be saved? And and look at Peter's response in verse 28. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So Jesus gives the answer, repentance. And, And that's why repentance is at the very heart of Christianity, because it's the answer to the question, how am I saved? The, the most important question. We repent and are baptized. But then compare this with a, another passage in Acts. So if you turn a few chapters uh, forward in Acts, Acts 16, and this is a, a passage where, uh, again, there's this Philippian jailer. He comes under the conviction of sin, and he asks the apostle Paul this question. What must I do to be saved? The most important question you could ask. And look at Paul's answer. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so if you, if you take that and, and you compare the Act, Acts 2 and Acts 16, they're answering the same question, but at first it seems like they're giving different answers because Peter says, repent. 
Paul says, believe. And the reason for this is that in the Bible, repentance and faith are, are really just two sides of the same coin. Because repentance is turning from sin to Christ. But, in, but if you think about, like, if you're turning from one thing to another, that it's, there's still one act of, of turning. And, and that's the way it is with repentance, that it's, it's so closely connected to faith because it's saying, I'm turning from this and hoping in this and trusting in this to trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And that's why Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. And so you're starting to see this picture of repentance in scripture. But let's turn to one more passage, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. So again, this is the Apostle Paul talking. And he says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so you see Paul here making this distinction that there's, there's this false repentance, this worldly grief, that he says leads to, to death, where we, we maybe feel bad about ourselves, we feel bad about what we've done, or we feel bad about the, the consequences for our sin, but it doesn't, it's, we're just looking at our sin and feeling bad about ourselves. We're not actually turning from Christ, to Christ from it, and so it, it leads to death. And the classic example of that in scriptures is Judas, who betrayed Christ, felt really bad for his sin, but it just drove him to the place of taking his own life, not to the place of repentance. But then you can, you can think of the other response that Paul's talking about, this, this godly grief, where there is grief for our sin. We, there's, we hate our sin, but it pushes us then to Jesus to see his love and, and mercy and, and forgiveness and the hope that he offers. And again, the classic of that is Peter, who also denied Christ surrounding his crucifixion, but then instead of being driven to despair and death, was driven to Christ for, for mercy and, and hope. So that's our, our picture then of repentance. But with all that in mind, then let's flip back to Luke chapter 13 again. And look at verse 5 and see what Jesus says. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so... Notice that, that Jesus is saying that, that repentance is for everybody. He says that repent or you will all likewise perish. That, that he's not saying that repentance is only for those who are you know, especially bad. It's not just for irreligious people. It's not just for, for Gentiles. But he's saying that every single person needs to repent. And it's not just that it's for everyone but repentance is all of the time um, because we, we don't just say once, well, you know, I repented in the past and that's sort of well and done. Um, or, um, oh, you know, I've kind of been there and done that. But, but the time for repentance is always now. And so the, the question for us then is always, have we repented? Have we turned 
to the Lord, not just once, but this constant act of turning. And that's why Martin Luther, uh, when he nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg in 1517, uh, launching the Protestant Reformation, this was the first thesis. He said that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And that's what the Christian life then is. It's not just isolated moments of repentance, but it's, you know, as people who constantly struggle with sin and will struggle with sin in this life, always, every time it's popping up in our lives, saying, Lord, I'm turning from this to Christ, that really what I'm wanting is Jesus, number one in my life, number one for everything that I am always continually. And so then as we wrap up then today, let's kind of take all of this thought on repentance and responding and think about it again in terms of coronavirus and and what's going on in the world. Because we said that there's this fear of economic loss that people have. And and definitely we, we pray for the for the economy, we don't want that to happen. But I also think that as Christians, we can forget how economic downturn can actually be a really incredible evangelistic opportunity because it it challenges the assumptions of where is hope actually founded? What is actually a a source of confidence? And and it's not something as as fragile as the stock market, that it's, it's rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And and there's the opportunity to live that out in repentance and display that. But then also, as we said, that there's a sense of the, the fear of death that's there always but can be highlighted uh, when things are going wrong in the world. And, and again, we, we pray that, that there's minimal loss of life. We, we want it to be stopped in its tracks. But again, world catastrophe is... is an opportunity for the gospel as well. And this was true back in about 270 years after the time of Christ. So about 250 to 270 AD, there was a a terrible plague in the Roman Empire. And people think that it was probably smallpox or the measles. Um, And apparently about 5,000 people died every day in Rome alone. And the, the response of the Romans was to blame Christians. And, and they said, well, see, it's this newfangled religion that the gods are, are punishing us. But they couldn't really sustain that argument against Christians because of the fact that Christians re- reacted very differently to the death. Because while everyone else was, was fleeing away from the death, the Christians were actually the ones who would go into the towns and the cities where the plague was and would care for the sick, often at the expense of their, their own lives. There's one scholar writing about this. He says, an epidemic that seemed like the end of the world would actually promote the spread of Christianity. By their actions in the face of possible death, Christians showed their neighbors that Christianity is worth dying for. And I think that that this is then the kind of response throughout life that we can have, that when when we see death, and, and we start with ourselves of saying, have I repented? Am I trusting Christ? Am I ready myself? And then, then we have confidence knowing where we're going. And it's not that we don't then take precautions and that, that we're reckless in some way. 
but at the same time that that we're not worried like we know where we're going and so there's a sense of offering then hope to the world around us of have you repented and trusted in christ are you ready for death are you ready for the end are you staking all of your hope in something that's fragile that's going to be here today and gone tomorrow or are you staking your hope in what is symbolized and sealed for us in this meal because what we see here in the in the picture of the, of the gospel in the lord's supper relates to all the things we, we've been saying as it, as it does every week <laughs> because it always comes back to, to jesus and his work because as as jesus was hanging on the cross uh, people looked at jesus and said oh he must be worse than all of the other sinners in jerusalem because he's suffering in such a way and of course if if you, you know from the, the New Testament that we are all the fruitless trees who deserve to be cut down in and of ourselves, that, that Jesus is, was the only tree in the history of humanity that truly bore fruit. Yet he was the one that was cut down. And he did that for us because he was taking our, our sins, that as we repent and trust in him, our sins are counted to him, his righteousness is counted to us and so when his body was broken when his blood was shed um, he was taking the weight of death itself so that we don't have to to fear it we don't have to fear it today we don't have to fear it tomorrow we don't have to fear it until the, the lord takes us home because repentance is actually possible that we can actually come to christ and know that we can be forgiven and accepted because of what jesus did for us and that's what we see here